Hey, deserving listeners, this episode is brought to you by Talkspace. Talkspace is uh, an ongoing sponsor of the show, and uh, they they were not a sponsor for a number of months, and now they're back. So it'd be really great if you went to Talkspace.com and use the promo code Kirk. You have to use the promo code Kirk when, when you sign up. Not only does that give you a discount, but it also signals to them that you're one of my listeners, which means that they're more likely to continue that sponsorship, which is kind of a big deal for the podcast. Online therapy has its pros and its cons, just like in-office therapy does. Um, I recently had Irvin Yalom on the podcast, one of my heroes. Uh, one of uh, He's a hero to a lot of therapists. And he, at first, thought online therapy was ridiculous, but has since come around and is now not only endorsing and, and accepting of online therapy, but even works for Talkspace. He has some, he's some sort of contractor with them right now, so he, he's, he's fully into it. And, and if that doesn't tell you that there's some value to it, I don't know what does. So if you're, if you're interested, you want to try it out, it, it's, it's relatively cheaper than in-office therapy. So if you're looking for a therapist and you just want to see what it's like, I, I think it's you know, definitely worth a try, particularly because we're having a sponsorship program. So go to, go to Talkspace.com, use the promo code Kirk. The, the online therapist is uh, a legit fully, ther- fully licensed therapist. They are trained in the mode of online therapy. And the difference with online therapy is you get to you get potentially talk with them um, every day or almost every day. Um, and that frequent contact has its, has its benefits, you know. And so uh, if you're traveling a lot or it's hard for you to find a good therapist, the other nice thing about Talkspace, I would imagine, is like, if you don't really click with one of the Talkspace therapists, you can just ask for a different therapist on Talkspace because it's you know it's just a matter of making that request, I think, and and so that can make it easier to shop around, I guess, right? Anyway, Talkspace.com. Make sure that you use the promo code Kirk. All right, back to the show. Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails. This first email actually is not from a patron, but it was interesting, and so I wanted to talk about it. But before you do that, let's introduce the podcast. This is the podcast that is called Psychology in Seattle, and I am your host, who is called Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. This first email is from someone who sent, they they sent in a video uh, that's getting a lot of hits on YouTube put out by this guy named Daniel Mackler, who quit being a therapist. And so his, his, his YouTube video is called Why I Quit Being a Therapist. And um, at first, when I clicked on it, I said, oh, this is a half an hour long. I don't think I'm going to watch this whole thing. But I found it to be interesting. And so I actually did watch the whole thing. I watched all half all 30 minutes of it just now. I think it's 30 minutes. And I thought I would just respond to some of his points. So he was a therapist for 10 years, and eight years ago he quit, and then he makes this video explaining why he quit. And and um, and he says at the beginning that some people think that it's weird that he quit being a therapist, which I could see. It 
is strangely similar to, in my mind, if someone was a priest or a minister or a monk or something, and they decided to quit and they became like a car, car salesman or something. It seems strange. It seems like, you know, once you become a therapist, you're supposed to die a therapist, right? You're not supposed to start working for Microsoft or, you know, I mean, if you retire, that is culturally seemingly coherent. But to just quit and just start a whole new, new career, it's supposed to be the opposite. You're supposed to like have a career at Microsoft and then have an epiphany and actually become a therapist and then retire as a therapist. So yeah, I could see how people talk to him and say, yeah, it's weird that you quit being a therapist. Why? Also, I think that it's one of those professions, at least in culture, that we see as somehow so special that it's not just a job. It's a calling. It's a almost religious experience, spiritual, I should say. Similar, again, to being a priest or a minister. You know, you, you don't choose to be a priest because of the money or the hours or the benefits. You choose to be a priest because you want to be close to God and you want to spread the word, right? And yeah, you happen to get paid for it. And I think being a therapist is at least somewhat similar to that, maybe not quite that far, but it's seen that way. It's like you don't become a therapist for the money. You become a therapist because you truly deeply care about human beings and nothing's going to stand in your way. And to some extent, I agree with that cultural notion. But on the other hand, it is a job and there are lots of ways to care about human beings and people do do it for the money. I, you know, I don't volunteer my time. I, I do pro bono work, but only because I get paid enough at my regular, you know, work to be able to do that. So it's a job and we get paid. And so therefore it's just like any other job, like working for Microsoft or working as a plumber or making weather vanes for a living. It's, it's a job. And sometimes, you know, you, you change careers. So I think it's, it, it is kind of odd that we see that decision as somehow different. Uh, some particulars that I got from his, from his video is that he has a social work degree. I think he's a, a master's level social worker in New York, but he calls himself a therapist, which is fine. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but it should be pointed out that he's, he, he doesn't have a therapy or a counseling degree as a social work degree. Um, that can mean a lot of different things, as I've talked about in other episodes. Some, for some people, social work degrees are like 90% what a, a therapy or counseling degree involves. But some social work degrees are very much more and therefore don't go as deep into psychotherapy and counseling and go more into... Uh, social work types of education and training, like how to work at a hospital, how to work with healthcare, how to coordinate care, how to case manage and that kind of stuff. So I don't know exactly what his, his education was, but I think that's, that's notable as I go into the rest of what he was talking about. He says that he worked with adults primarily, and he really liked it. He, he talks about how he was fully into the job. He loved, he loved being a therapist and also he talked a little bit about his, his income. I mean, he didn't go into full detail, but he said at one point that he got paid $37 per session, which I don't know exactly what that means because that's very low. Typical, because he, I think he said he was in private practice. And so 
to get $37 a session, uh, I'm guessing he's getting paid through Medicaid because that's an extremely low rate. I mean, even the the crappiest of health insurance outfits won't go that low. So it's and in Washington state, for example, we for whatever reason private practitioners can't use Medicaid. And so we have to use private insurance, you know, like Blue Cross, Blue Shield, that kind of thing. And so I wonder if New York State is one of those states where they actually do allow Medicaid, and therefore you're getting a lot of uh, government rates, which are a lot lower. Just to give you an idea, um, in Washington State, we have Primera Blue Cross, and they pay about 120 per session, so, uh, which is lower than my rate, which is 150, but 120, that's, that's fine with me. And to get as low as 37 a session. Now, some of you out there might be thinking $37 an hour. That's, you know, that's insane. That's a, that's, you know, that's a lot of money, but that doesn't include all the expenses. It also doesn't include all the paperwork time and the stress involved and the supervision and and consultation you need. You know, it's sort of like saying um, to a lawyer or something, it's like, you're charging $300 an hour. That's insane. Well, that doesn't, you know, they're not, they're they're also working a lot and not getting paid is the point. So uh, you have to pay your own taxes, blah blah blah. So you know, thirty seven dollars a session probably works out to be, you know, depending on like if you're renting an office, so you're in New York, blah blah. blah you know, might get as low as like actually just getting $15 per hour um, after taxes and everything like that, you know, maybe 20, I don't know. Anyway, and plus, you know, people have student loans often, uh, graduate school is expensive. So, um, you know, having said that, you can make a good living. <laughs> I, I just saw a uh, squirrel outside my window just make the most awkward but amazing leap from my garage into a pine tree. And uh, it just made me laugh. So <laughs> I decided to laugh, and then I decided that I had to explain why I was laughing. Okay. So he said that he quit being a therapist for a number of reasons. One of the reasons that he says is that he, uh, he, he says that the mental health system is completely screwed up, he says. And, you know, he didn't provide really any data immediately about why he was saying the mental health system is screwed up. But yeah, I mean, I, I can agree with that. Most therapists wouldn't say the mental health system in the United States is is a, you know, shining beacon of efficiency and social justice and goodness, you know. So, you know, but again, uh, you know, it, it, it does, he's not really saying much there. And it's, uh, I, you know, and it's not a surprise. Um, something also that he said, and I'm sort I'm paraphrasing. I, I took notes while he was talking, but I'm paraphrasing. He said that therapy, the therapy, the mental health system is pseudoscientific and unscientific. He even said it was antisocial, which I'm not sure if he means asocial, like against society or something. I don't know. But um, he seems to be saying essentially, if I was to sort of uh, parse through what he was saying in terms of what his claim is, I think he's, his claim is that he thinks that therapists aren't educated enough and that they're not effective with their clients. Through, throughout his half an hour talk, I will say if there's one criticism I would have of it, but just as a, just an overall thing here is um, he makes a lot of claims that are justified. 
It's just a matter of how he dealt with them. So I'm, I'm not going to tear him apart with the different claims. So he, he basically attacks the entire mental health system. And a lot of his complaints about the mental health system, I will, I will agree with. It was just, and if he decided to quit to be a therapist, that's totally fine. There's, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with him quitting because of that. I've, I've had friends quit. I've thought about quitting myself. So it's not, uh, I don't fault him for that at all. But he kind of extends it, his talk into basically saying, he doesn't say this directly, but he's basically saying he was the, he's the only effective therapist because he didn't act like a real therapist. And I don't know, you know, he, he said, you know, he, he wasn't cold. He was very warm. He wasn't um, concerned with the things that all therapists were concerned with. And so either he was surrounded with a bunch of really terrible clinicians or he just has a particular point of view that he thinks he knows better than every other therapist in the field. Because as he was talking, I was thinking, well, the things that you claim, so he, he would, he would, he sets himself up as like this super compassionate, super caring, super effective therapist. And then he sets up every other clinician in, in the system, every other clinician who, who works in the United States or New York or whatever as being terrible. And as he's talking, I'm thinking, again, either you're surrounded with terrible therapists or you didn't take the time to really get to know your colleagues well enough to to find people who thought the way you did. Because the way that he thinks is actually in my neck of the woods in Seattle to be very common. So but I, you know, I have never practiced in New York and I, it wouldn't surprise me that the uh, system in New York is, is really quite different and the culture around mental health is really quite different. I don't know. Now, some of the claims that he had, I, I, I would say I've experienced for sure. But anyway, so he says he basically has this claim that therapists um, aren't educated enough or they're not effective. And um, in order to be an effective therapist, you have to kind of completely uh, break free of your training, which is which is interesting thing to say. He says that uh, diagnosing people harms people. So, so this is, I've talked about this before at length. It's a very complicated topic to talk about the DSM and diagnosing and what it means and stigma. It, there's definitely a stigma and you can definitely harm people through diagnosing. And clinicians, in my experience, don't do enough to mitigate the harm or at least explain to the clients with informed consent regarding what the diagnosing means. Technically speaking, as clinicians, we don't need to work collaboratively with our clients regarding the diagnosis. For example, when you go to your physician and the physician does an examination and diagnoses you with, I don't know, you have gonorrhea or something, they don't, they don't ask for your consent to write gonorrhea on your, on your patient file. They just say, I've done the test, you have gonorrhea. Now, you might not like it that you have a permanent record in your medical record that says you have gonorrhea, but that's just the way it is. You, you can't, I mean, I suppose you could petition your physician to erase it, there, and maybe some people do, but but the point is, is that, you know, you go to a physician, you get an assessment, and, you know, they write down a diagnosis, and it's it's a matter of their medical record. And in therapy, it's, you know, it's considered to be this a similar field when it comes to diagnosing. However, for me, and when I teach my supervisees and my students, I work collaboratively with my clients on this, because I want clients to be on board, I want them to be, 
under, I want them to understand what's happening and I want them to buy into the whole process. And so whenever I talk to my clients and I'm actually diagnosing them, uh, and, and some of my clients and many of my supervisees clients actually don't qualify for a diagnosis at all, in which case we'd actually don't apply a diagnosis. Um, so, uh, I, uh, will talk with my clients. I'll say, so here's the diagnosis that you qualify for and here's why. And the, and in order for insurance or whomever to pay for this, we need to actually justify the therapy by, um, by reporting that you have a medically necessary diagnosis. If we don't report that, then the insurance companies won't pay for it because they'll think that you're just doing this for a hobby or something and, or self-care or self-actualization. And insurance companies are not interested in paying for people to self-actualize. They're, they're interested in paying for medically necessary um, conditions. And so uh, we need to apply a label. Here's the label that you qualify for. Here's why. Uh, do you consent to me sending this diagnosis to your insurance company? And, you know, and, and clients most of the time will say, yeah, I'm fine with that. But some, some clients are like, oh, actually, no, I, I don't want you to report any diagnosis to my insurance company. And I'll say, okay, totally cool. Here's your options. You can either, if you do that, I can't use insurance because insurance has to have a, di a diagnosis. Um, so if you, if you want to, then you can just pay out of pocket and some people will do that and they won't use their insurance as a result. Uh, many patients, when I talk with them about this, they'll be like, well, I've been in therapy before and no one talked about a diagnosis then. And I'll say, well, was insurance being used? And they'll say, yep. And I'll be like, well, then your, your therapist diagnosed you and reported a diagnosis to your insurance company. And the client will be like, huh, I wonder what that was. Now, most clients are like, you know, I don't really care who, you know, what's the big deal. But some people do very, very rarely, but some people do. They'll be like, wait, so my last therapist diagnosed me and didn't tell me. And so I always, you know, I always recommend people uh, work collaboratively with their clients on that. Um, so with the effort of trying to reduce harm for people, the other thing is, is I tend to work with, you know, what they call high functioning people who don't suffer from stigmatized diagnoses. So, um, so there's that. Also, if given a, a choice, I will apply the diagnosis that if they say they uh, say they qualify for two or three diagnoses well depending on the situation i might report the least stigmatized diagnosis to the insurance company um for the reason that i don't want to harm the client okay so um the other so he says the ds he just says diagnosing people harms diagnosing people uh, harms people and this statement is um, a kind of a black and white statement that uh, absolutely can happen. But if you understand how to, um, a, you know, work it professionally, or you understand what can actually harm people, then I, I, I believe I can avoid harming clients. I don't think I've ever harmed anyone with my diagnosing. And I've diagnosed, you know, hundreds or um, you know, maybe over a thousand, two thousand different people. I don't know. I some, every once in a while I try to figure out like the back of the napkin estimate of how many clients I've worked with. But suffice it to say, I've di I've been diagnosing for twenty something years and uh, many many people. And um, and to my knowledge, I've never harmed them. Now, you know, might someone been harmed and I didn't know about it, um, or they didn't know about it, or 
uh, they just didn't um, call me and tell me that it harmed them. Uh, it's possible, but I, I just, I don't know. I just, I can't see that happening with a high likelihood. Because really, the, the times where diagnoses will harm someone is, as, as long as confidentiality is uphold, which it usually is, is when there are, you're, like I, I had a client once who worked for um, a job that was like with the government, and so you couldn't have a diagnosis or else you wouldn't be able to work in that job, in that industry. You would actually lose your job if you were diagnosed with anything in the DSM. And so um, I tried to work with him on that. At some point it became impossible and his his condition became so aggravated that uh, we both agreed that he needed to come clean with his workplace about it. Um, and that, But that was something I worked with him collaboratively. So in that instance, and, and other people will, will too, you know, have situations where their jobs or, I don't know, something else will depend on them appearing as though they have no mental health condition. Now, the thing I'll say to that is that's wrong. That, 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 that's, that's not our fault. That's the fault of these professions not understanding that half of Americans at some point in their life will suffer from a mental condition. And that, that doesn't mean that you can't be a good employee. There's this extremely silly heuristic that if, if you have a condition in the DSM, you're crazy and, you know, you, you're going to be a terrible employee. And it's like, that's, there's no evidence of that. Certainly there are some conditions that will compromise your ability to work at a particular job. Like if you're, if you're delusional and you're a dentist, like I don't imagine those things go very well together, but you know, having an anxiety disorder or suffering from PTSD or occasionally having depression or, um, having a personality disorder doesn't, there's no evidence that says that you are any less effective than anyone else. In fact, some mental conditions might actually make you more effective on the job. So, um, so there's that, uh, other situations where diagnosing will, will actually harm people would be as if you used it in a way that hurt their feelings, right? If you just were like, you are borderline because you have terrible relationships or I don't know, just some kind of stigmatized message or or you diagnose someone and then they go on the internet and and they are hurt by what they're reading on the internet about people with that sort of diagnosis and again that's not our fault uh, therapists don't stigmatize it in general but society does and that's unfair to the clients for sure and it's up to the therapist to mitigate that it's like so here's if you're really curious what your diagnosis is here, you know let me explain it but understand, if you go home and Google this, like there's going to be a lot of really terrible things people saying about people with this condition because society doesn't understand this. And let me explain why. Um, also, this diagnosis, you know, it's just between you and me. So, you know, we don't have to, it's, it's something you can disclose to people if you want to. But let me explain, let me explain this whole thing. So anyway, there's other, that could go on for a while, but anyway. So he says, you know, he quit being a therapist because DS, that, you know, diagnosing people harms people. And it's like, well, I, I, yeah, I can. And, but there's, there's ways to mitigate that for sure. Also, he's, he, his claim, he claimed that most people can be diagnosed with anything if the therapist just feels like diagnosing them. Basically, what he's saying here is like anyone who walks into your office, whether they have an actual mental condition or not, can be 
can be diagnosed with something in the DSM. If the therapist just kind of um, fudges some things, you know, or makes a good justification for something. And yeah, that's true. Uh, if a therapist, it's such a squishy science, it's such a soft science that a qualified clinician, if, you know, if they, if they cherry pick the data from the client, there are very low uh, threshold diagnoses in the DSM, like adjustment disorders or um, something I see a lot, which is a total hack move, which is to diagnose someone with uh, anxiety disorder, not otherwise specified, um, which is um, a sort of catch all like, well, this person's anxious, but they, they don't qualify for any of the actual, you know, anxiety disorders. So I'm going to label them with this. And yeah, I mean, the criteria are so squishy and in the eye of the beholder that it's true. Most people, if not everyone can be sort of falsely illegitimately diagnosed with a mental condition and, and this happens. So, so this is something that I agree with him on in that, it's it's a bit of a sham sometimes in, in terms of the diagnosing practices that are happening sometimes. Because, again, as I was saying earlier, in order for people to get services, they need a medically, di- medically necessary diagnosis that needs to be reported to the insurance company. And some therapist will, you know, I don't have direct proof of this, but I, I just, from my anecdotal observation, it seems as though some therapists, some counselors, some psychiatrists will either uh, actually lie and say that this person has a medical condition so that so that they can get services, or they'll f- kind of fudge it in their mind to make it so that they believe the person does have a medical condition, when if they really thought about it, they didn't. So, yeah, that, that can happen. I would say... On percentage-wise, anecdotally, I would say that probably happens, I don't know, 10 or 20% of the time. So it's significant, but it's not, it's not most of the time. Most of the time, people come in, uh, they have a um, presentation that makes it pretty easy to apply a diagnosis. And most clinicians would consider it, quote-unquote, legitimate. So, so it's a complicated thing, and, and are, are bad things. And, and sometimes there's just literal fraud. I mean, there are people caught by the government every once in a while who are knowingly fraudulently applying DSM diagnoses labels when clearly the person doesn't have that. So, so there's all that. And yeah, that, that's, that's a problem. But again, uh, just because of, you know, that, that's not a problem with all therapists and many therapists are on the up and up and they try to be, um, ethical about that. And, you know, I, I know people, I know therapists who actually refuse to diagnose people altogether and they don't work with insurance companies. They're in private practice and they, they don't even work in that system. They, they don't, you know, in their mind, they might diagnose people, but, but they don't put it on the file and they don't use insurance companies. So they don't have to report that. So, you know, there's a lot of different things that are happening. From my um, understanding of what his job was like, was he was working pretty closely with psychiatrists, I'm thinking. And so that system definitely is different than the general psychotherapy system. I mean, if you're working close with psychiatrists, um, you know, it's just a different approach and it's a different mindset in general. There are some psychiatrists, some 
nurse practitioners, psychiatric nurses who talk exactly the way that I do. And when they talk, I'm like, oh, yeah, amen, sister. But uh, sometimes when I talk with medical professionals, psychiatrists, and the way they talk about their clients and the way they talk about diagnoses and the way they talk about ongoing care, it just it sounds like another world. And I'm not saying it's ineffective. I'm just saying that the kinds of things they deal with. I mean, you know, if, if you're a psychiatrist and like 95% of your patients have had a psychotic episode in the last, you know, three or four years, then that's a different life. That's a different profession. It's a completely different profession than me who works with people with trauma, works with people who have grief, you know, and have never had a psychotic episode. You know, it's, like, it's a completely different sort of mindset, right? Because so you can't, you can't use psychotherapy to alleviate psychosis and delusions. I mean, you can kind of mitigate the stress a little bit, but if someone is ha- if someone's having a um, you know psychotic episode, there's no amount of counseling that's going to take that away. Everyone agrees that you know that that you can't do that. You can. They still deserve compassion. They still deserve you know positive regard. They still deserve support. They still deserve the ability to vent, which means that therapy can meet all those needs. But you're not going to be able to just talk away the delusion, you know. Um, anyway, I digress. Other things that he said, you know, reasons why he quit being a therapist were that therapists are supposed to push people to take drugs. And he talked for a while about how he was supposed to upsell people to go to psychiatrists. You know, he would be talking. He said that, you know, therapy. So this is another claim he had, like all therapists are like this, but he was different. You know, all therapists, all they want to do is make their clients go to a psychiatrist and take drugs. And these drugs harm people and blah, blah, blah. And that's that's a pretty wild claim. Now, you know, in his community, if that's his observation, like his community has a massive problem, I will tell you that. But in my experience, in my community in Seattle, one, it's the, if anything, it's the opposite, the, that... A lot of therapists, because they actually consider themselves to be outside of, of med- medicine, you know, of they don't, uh, you know, many therapists are like, look, we're over here and the medical professionals are over there. And if anything, when I'm talking to people, I hear a bias against medication that is actually not helpful. You know, there are some times when a medication can actually help. And it's, it's pretty um, rare that I run into a situation where I'm recommending that someone go to a psychiatrist. Um, one, they, they might already be going to a psychiatrist, or two, they just have a condition. You know, if you have PTSD, there's no medication that's going to take away your PTSD. If you have grief, there's no medication. But if you're suffering from, uh, you know, significant suicidal ideation, sometimes the medication is, is justified as it like, well, you know, uh, it's either try, and, try this one or, or maybe you'll die next week. I don't know. So, you know, there, it's, it's a complicated thing, you know, but anyway, the point is, is that in his community, he was saying that everyone was pressured to upsell people to go to a psychiatrist. And he saw that as a, as a big problem. And I would say that, yeah, if he is, if he or anyone in his community were pressuring clients to go to a psychiatrist against their will or, or as some sort of uh, magic bullet that was going to solve all everyone's problems, then yeah, that's a problem. But that's, He's attacking a straw man, as far as I can tell. You know, that doesn't, that's not, that's not 
I, you know, I would, I would like to see the evidence of that claim that therapists are super big on upselling to, to medication. Now, if you're a social worker and you work very closely with psychiatrists, I'm guessing that you probably do get some pressure because psychiatrists, that's the way that they think in general. Now, there are exceptions for sure. There are many psychiatrists, particularly, um, you know, younger psychiatrists or, I don't know, more cutting-edge psychiatrists, psychiatrists that are interested in talk therapy who absolutely understand that there's a bias toward medication that they that they actively fight against themselves. You know, is that a problem in our society? Yeah. Um, uh, are we are we medicating people too much? Yeah. In some ways, we're medicating people too much. And in other ways, we're not medicating them enough. Just take, for example, with ADHD. ADHD is both underdiagnosed and overdiagnosed. So you have many people who are being diagnosed with ADHD who actually don't have it. And they're being, um, you know, given medication and sometimes forced to take medication if they're children when they actually don't need it. And you, a lot of kids like that. You also have a lot of kids and adults who have legitimate ADHD executive function problems who have never been diagnosed with ADHD and have never taken a medication and should be taking a medication or at least should try it, you know? And so, um, so it's both, you know, because our society is, you know, we just are fairly immature and childish when it comes to mental health and when it comes to awareness of this kind of thing and stigma and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, another reason why he said he quit being a therapist was because insurance companies put pressure on him to justify um, why he was seeing his clients so often. So it, in this situation, it's hard for me to tell what's happening, but I definitely know what he's talking about. Basically, he was saying that he was working with some clients who really needed a lot of care. And so he was seeing them like three times a week and it was actually helping them. And then the insurance company, he was actually helping the clients. And then the insurance company would call him and say like, whoa, why are you seeing this, this patient three times a week? Like, um, you know, that's, that's not normal. And, and then he, they would say, you know, if you want to continue seeing this patient this, this much, you're going to have to justify it with a treatment plan. And so he didn't like that. And, and I don't know exactly how he didn't describe the back and forth, but from what he, his, but he, what he did describe was basically, he felt like, he felt like it was an imposition on him that he had to justify it. And then once he did justify it, they actually did pay for it. <laughs> so, so here's the thing on that. Um, insurance companies are not in the business of trying to elevate the human race. Insurance companies are corporations that have stockholders and their mission is to make money for their stockholders. That is their mission. That is why we have a problem with our mental health care system in the United States. And that is why we should probably go toward a government system that, you know, will have problems too, but won't be so profit-oriented. You know, we when you introduce profit into the medical system, it gets weird. But anyway, so so that's that's why, you know, when so when a uh, case manager at an insurance company sees one particular therapist that is costing their bottom line like three or four times as much money than a therapist next door. It's just a matter of statistics to them. Then, you know, they don't care. So they're going to call you and they're going to be, they're going to put pressure on you and they're going to ask you to justify it. Now, what they're thinking is 
that what they're hoping, in my estimation, a lot of times these insurance companies, is that you'll give in to the pressure and you, you'll just you'll you'll reduce your service and you'll reduce the cost to them. So now, what the insurance company doesn't realize is that th- what the what the therapist is doing, even though this therapist was you know seeing this person three times a week, is that the the clients that this this guy was working with were at risk of being hospitalized and so and he actually talked about this he talked like look i you know you're you're going to pay $37 a session for me for 3 sessions a week okay that's 100 bucks so he didn't lay this all out mathematically but i will he so you got 100 bucks a week to uh have me provide this service well what i'm doing is i'm keeping this person out of the hospital which is like 1 or $2000 a day so, you know, it, you're, you're winning by this. And, uh, and I think insurance companies do consider that sometimes. Uh, but they're also trying to balance it out with like, you know, is this therapist just kind of off the rails and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so what this therapist was saying on YouTube, he's like, you know, this is complete bullshit. I, I shouldn't have to justify it. He, he didn't say those exact words, but he, he felt that, that conflict between him and the insurance companies. And yeah, amen, I have been there. But I understand the context. I understand that insurance companies aren't my friends. And I understand that it, it is a inherently conflictual relationship at times, for sure. I mean, I have absolutely felt that pressure. And I've absolutely fought for my patients to, to be authorized to get more services, for sure. And it can be extremely annoying and extremely stressful and is one of the worst parts about being in private practice. Now, if you're working at an agency, you never really have to do with that because there's like an office person who deals with that. And if you have an office person and it's their job, they're sort of used to the whole conflict thing and they know how to play the game. But for people in private practice, it's kind of a rare thing that we actually get asked to justify our service. And so it often throws therapists into this loop, into this like, you know, downward spiral of like shame and inadequacy. And once you get good at it, you just, you know, you go through the motions and, and if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, you just, it's just business that that's how I eventually got my place to, I was just like, well, I could, you know, let this destroy my day or my week, or I could just be like, look, what can I do? You know, what's, what's the, what's the, you know, what hoop do I have to jump through to make this happen? You know? And, and, you know, I'll try to jump through the hoop. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, you know. And if it doesn't work, then I'll just go to the patient. I'll just be like, sorry, I, I tried, but the insurance company isn't paying for more services. And I'm really sorry about that. And that's another part of the thing that he was talking about was that he seemingly really cared about his patients. And he saw a lot of patients suffering a lot. And he had a really hard time with that. And, he, you know, so these pressures from like, you know, get him on medication. And other people were like, you know, justify your service. He, he, he just felt really unfair to him. And he had a hard time coping with that. And I get that, you know, that if you, if you have a, um, if you have a heart that it's going to hurt. And there are some incredibly disheartening, demoralizing realizations that all therapists have once they enter this field. There are people, you know, I, I've told about, I've, I've talked about this story, Years ago, when I was first starting out, I think it was, I just graduated, I had a client, a teenage girl who told me that she was being sexually abused by her father. And it was, um, you know, I don't want to say lower on the scale, but, you know, he, he wasn't raping her. It was like, he was doing a lot of creepy things that were undoubtedly sexual abuse. And 
she's telling me this and I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much for telling me. You've done the right thing. And she's like, well, you're the only one I've ever told. And I, I was like, well, you did the right thing because there's a whole system in place that's going to help that's going to help you. You know, there's a whole just legal system, CPS, you know, DSHS system that is there just for people like you who tell people like me, we're both going to call child protective services. They're going to swoop in, they're going to make stuff happen and we're going to protect you. You know, we're going to do what we can. And, you know, you did the right thing by telling me, well, I was naive, you know, we involved child protective services and long story short, nothing happened and they didn't do shit. And now Child Protective Services sometimes has their hands tied because, you know, they, it's not like they don't care. They absolutely do care about kids. But the system has rules and there's laws and there's procedures. And sometimes kids kind of back off in terms of what they told me originally and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, it, that was that destroyed me. You know, I lied. I, that was 21 years ago. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It, it was it was awful. I thought. Here, here's this innocent victim telling someone who's a mandated reporter, me, we're going to, we're going to call the authorities. You know, it'd be like if, um, you know, someone shot and killed your dog and you had them on video camera and you take the video to the police and the police are like, oh, I don't know, we can't really do anything. And you're just like, how is this, how is this justice? This doesn't make any sense. Like, how is this possible? There's stuff like that happens all the time. Not, not only just system, but just like people will come to you and talk about how they were um, raped by several people throughout their life. And you just think, how is this, this can't be right. This can't be how the world works. This can't be how the universe operates. It's, it's, it's unfair. And, so, so he was dealing with a lot of that and he was really suffering. And I get that, you know, um, I've suffered in that way. And if that suffering is too great to be in the business, then by all means, get out. Um, but there are ways to deal with that in, in, in my, um, experience. Okay. So, so the other thing about the treatment plans is that in the beginning of my career, when people would ask me for a treatment plan, I would freak out because I had no idea how to write a treatment plan. That's why. Now that I know how to write a treatment plan later in my career, when someone asks me for a treatment plan, I, I can write a treatment plan in 30 seconds. What, when I was at the beginning of my career, because it's such a rare thing to have to actually just on the spot write a treatment plan that will be audited or scrutinized by someone who might be even kind of against you like an insurance company. You, you might never have to do that. The first time you might be asked to do that might be like three years into your career. And I find that to be actually problematic. If you can't, and I actually work with my supervisees on this, I'll, I'll give them quizzes. I'll be like, okay, pick a client in your head. Okay, uh, in, in 10 seconds, write a treatment plan. Because treatment plans, you should be able to write very quickly. And you should be able to, there, there are, and there are phrases that you can sort of recycle that are accurate, but are, you know, that, that sound legitimate and are legitimate, you know, like a treatment plan would be like, um, client came to me complaining of depression and anxiety related to his recent divorce. I recommended weekly one hour individual therapy to, work on emotional regulation and recovery from the stressor of the divorce. 
period. Client agreed to the treatment plan, period. I just, how long did that take me? 10 seconds, 15 seconds? I don't know how long it took. That's the treatment plan. (laughs) But some therapists have a really hard time doing that. Now, if I was sending it to an insurance company, I'd have to add a little bit more in there because, you know, I'd have to somehow justify three sessions a week like this therapist was doing. Um, But, you know, it's, it's not... The, the reason why it's so distressful for a therapist to have to do that is, in my estimation, often because they, they feel inadequate and they don't know what to do. And I've seen this happen to my supervisees. They'll get asked to do stuff like this, and they'll just be freaking out. And I'll be like, take a breath. <laughs> There's a very easy way to do this. And, and the fact that you don't know it isn't, a, an, isn't evidence of your inadequacy. It's evidence of your lack of training. No one has taught you how to do this, and so let me teach you. And so anyway, um, he also, you know, has this claim that there's nothing special about a therapist and that anyone can be a therapist. Anyone can be effective as a therapist because it's just about having a good conversation. He basically says this. And there is some truth to that. When we are suffering and we go to someone and that person listens and has compassion and is interested in us and... um, is attuned to our feelings, that is incredibly therapeutic. And you don't need a degree to be able to do that. Anyone can do that. Having said that, our field is much more complicated than that very important function. We have lots of other functions, like writing treatment plans, for example, like interfacing with psychiatrists, like diagnosing, like understanding countertransference, like understanding transference, like understanding how uh, what trauma exactly is, you know. intuition is not a good guide when treating trauma. When people are using their intuition or their general sense of what culture has taught them about how to treat trauma, they will actually harm clients. And so, although I totally agree with him that a good attuned conversation can be therapeutic, that is not the only function of therapy. So I, I, you know, that I agree with him on one level, but terribly disagree with him on another level. He also said that he didn't like that he, he, he didn't like that he wasn't making much money. Uh, again, he was, he, he mentioned that he was making $37 per session from the insurance company, which makes me think it was Medicaid, which is, yeah, on a very unfortunate low reimbursement rate. And there are other insurance companies like Premier Blue Cross here in Washington that pay 120 per session. Um, so there's all that. Also, he said that he, would waive people's co-pays, which is actually counter to uh, the contract. It's actually breaking rules on some level. But he felt bad for his clients because they couldn't even afford to pay the copay. which, again, I totally get that. You're, you're watching someone suffer. They're just living day to day, and they need therapy, and you're helping them. And now you've added to their stress by making them pay a bunch of money that they don't have. You know, it's like they can choose between eating that day or going to therapy. And that's, that's terribly heartbreaking. And again, that's why we need a government system that pays for this kind of stuff because no one should be put in that position. So he didn't like that. He wasn't making very much money. Uh, I think, and he, he was, he was even charging people on a sliding fee scale and whatnot. So yeah, I get that. And that's also a, a crime as well, especially with how much education we need and how stressful the job can be. The fact that people are not getting paid very much is totally unfair. 
Um, you know, you should be able to make a living and not have to destroy your soul in the process. Right. So, um, yeah, but that's not a problem with, that's not a problem with therapy. That's, that's an indictment on the system and on insurance companies and on voters and government and everything like that. And, you know, he, he wasn't attacking therapists in that instance. I think he was attacking the system, which I totally get. Having said that, I talk with lots of graduates, you know, I'm, I'm a professor in a program and I have been for 20 years and I've been coaching people at, on early career. And one of the major things we talk about is how they can pay their bills and make a living and be comfortable. And it might take a few years to get there, but you know, it's possible. And I've, I've managed to get people there. Um, there are things that you can do, uh, working in an agency, private practice, working in research, having, um, a consultation practice of some kind, uh, teaching. There's, there's lots of career options for people in mental health and there's a way to make a good living out of it. I, uh, just to give you an idea on, on actual salary, you know, right out of graduation, sort of the, the average low paying job at an agency, I'm guessing is about like 40,000, 45,000 a year. Um, but private practice, once, once that is going, full-time and full-time isn't 40 hours a week. It's more like 25 hours a week. Cause you have, you have paperwork and you know, other kinds of things you have to do. But, um, so about, you know, 20 to 25 clients a week, you know, you should be earning about a hundred thousand a year, maybe, maybe 150 or something, maybe 80 to 150, depending on your sliding fee scale and all that kind of stuff. So that's private practice. And there's, you know, you can work your way up at agencies up to 60 or 70,000 a year. You could work at a school, you could, you know, work for a research outfit or something. You can teach. Teaching is probably the least amount of money per hour. Um, it, it truly is something you do because you love it. But um, there's a way to make a living. And it sounds like he was just didn't, he just didn't have the opportunities. Or in his area in New York, there, there weren't many opportunities. I don't know. But in Seattle, uh, I say with a lot of confidence that there are a lot of options for graduates and I work very closely with them and see that um, they're way more successful than I was when I started out. I'm actually kind of jealous of them sometimes. I'm just like, man, you have a full practice within like nine months, you know, like it, it took me, I don't know, like four or five years to get there. So anyway, but I get that, you know, uh, it can, sometimes people think like being a therapist, you're rolling in dough and, uh, and you can, if, after a while, if you have a good mentor and you know how to work it, because there's a lot of different angles you have to work. But the typical job that you get right out of graduation is, is not glamorous. Let's put it that way. So I get that. Uh, another thing that he talks about is that it was a very exhausting job for him. He was, he was, he was very exhausted by the job. And he said that he would cry every day with at least one of his clients. And from the way he talked, he seemed to really care, which is good. And he said, he just says very flippantly, and this, here's where this kind of um, straw man or arrogance comes out of him. He's like, yeah, I would talk to other therapists, and they would keep their distance, and they just didn't seem to care. And it's just like, well, again, either you're surrounded by a bunch of cold asshole therapists, or you didn't actually ask them the right questions, because typical therapists that I know are very caring, very compassionate people who would absolutely cry with their clients if, if it came to that. Um, so, but anyway, he says he was getting exhausted and, 
Um, and he said after, after six years of being a therapist, he was suffering from um, what I'm going to call secondary trauma. He was just calling it like suffering and um, taking it home with him. He would dream about his clients, but he also started having like an ulcer in his, you know, somewhere in his, in his GI tract. And he said that was a direct result of the stress, which, which I get. He said when he was on vacation, he was like plagued with his clients. He couldn't, he was worried about them all the time. Again, he dreamt about his clients and yeah, I get that again, that very common problem. And there's, but there's a way around that, you know, with consultation, with good supervision, with good practices, there are ways in which you can absolutely retain that caring, compassion, loving attitude and, and um, attunement to your clients and, ab- and cry with your clients when they cry. And when you're done with work, you're done with work and you, you know, you go on with your life. But there needs to be a lot of support and a lot of growth, honestly. You, you need to, there's, there's a, prof- for me, over time, I have developed this kind of, it's a strange ability that I don't think people are necessarily born with, but, and I've, and I, my colleagues who are, um, you know, Bob has come on the podcast. He talks about this too, in which when you're sitting there with your client, you are very attuned. You're very interested. You're, you're, you care a lot, but when, but when you punch out, you know, when, when you're, when you're done with work for the day, um, I just move on with my life and it, it doesn't, I don't, I don't carry it with me. Um, partially because I'm just used to it, but partially also because it's like, well, what good is it going to do for me to worry about this person? It doesn't, it's, it's, it doesn't do any good for me to worry and dream about this person and not have a vacation. I, my clients need me to be fresh and energetic and robust. And in order for that to happen, I, I need to be able to put it aside so I can recover, you know? Now, having said that, it also sounds like he was working with clients who had some very um, difficult problems. <laughs> it sounds like a funny thing to say, but it sounds like he was working with, like, I have a supervisee right now who is working primarily with people who have been sexually abused, who have been raped, who have been abu- sexually abused by family members. And this supervisee is is having a really tough time because every client is talking about or doing something in relation to having been terribly sexually abused. And that is a lot to deal with. And human, I don't think it's humanly possible. Um, And I, if, and there are studies that demonstrate that people who work at these centers that focus on sexual trauma or trauma in general have much more burnout, have much more secondary trauma, have much more psychiatric symptoms themselves. They, you can develop secondary PTSD. You can develop actual full-blown physical neurological PTSD just by listening to other people's tr- stories about trauma. And so it sounds like this guy might have had that kind of client population. And, you know, God bless him for helping those people. Uh, but it's not a it's not an advisable practice that some people actually, you know, get into. And so all this kind of leads to this general thing that I'll say about him, which was that he seemed to have lacked any good supervision. He talked about how he was in super, he's like, supervision is a joke. When I would meet my, with my supervisor, 
I felt like I was, I had to play this game. Otherwise my supervisor was going to pounce on me about something. That's my paraphrase. It, it sounded like his supervisor was a terrible human being, honestly, or just really bad at supervision or just wrongheaded about what therapy is or something. And the, and that's where a lot of people's coping mechanisms and their uh, perspective and their ability to cope with being a therapist uh, is developed is in supervision. You know, you can teach about like all the things that I'm talking about. You can, you can teach that in a class. Sure. But the main place where a clinician is going to really learn and internalize all of these things I've been talking about, which you can't really learn in a book is by having conversations with a supervisor who is a safe person to talk to, who is a mentor, who has been there before and self-discloses and is attuned to the supervisee. So it just sounds like this this therapist on YouTube was terribly mistreated by inadequate, maybe even harmful supervision. Um, I've written a whole book about this called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. In that book, I lay out my recommendations for the 19 different roles of supervision, but I also talk about how thera- how uh, supervision goes wrong and how how many supervisors are inadequate or harmful. Something like 35% of supervisors are harmful to their supervisees and something like, I don't know, like 70 or 80%, some, some high amount of percentage of supervisors are inadequate. And so it, there's, a, there's a terrible um, uh, thing that's happening in our field regarding supervision. It's a, it's a very, being a supervisor should be a, a highly specialized, highly um, um, certified, you know, like and I, in the book, I actually lay out recommendations for supervision. And I say that you, you probably need one or two more years of graduate school just to be, just to sort of begin to kind of know what supervision is all about. But often supervisors have no training. They're just, a, they're just another therapist that's like been in the field longer than you. And somehow that gives them the credential or somehow the, the expertise of supervision. Supervision is completely different than therapy. And so somehow it's just like, yep, you're a good therapist. You can be a supervisor. So, so I think he was incredibly let down and, um, and, you know, uh, in a very typical way by a terrible supervisor, terrible supervisor who didn't care, who didn't create a safe place, who didn't guide him on how to deal with burnout who didn't guide him on how to deal with people pressuring him with meds, who didn't help him learn how to write a treatment plan and how to, how to work within the system, you know, all that kind of stuff. He also talked about being very isolated in this video and how he had little support. And yeah, that's another problem, but that's not inherent to the uh, field. Um, If it's up to all of us to, um, you know, cobble if we're going to be in private practice we need to cobble together a support system now what this guy would say in the video is that's unfair to therapists and i would say yeah but there's a way to make it happen is the point um you have to be extroverted on some level um at least in this endeavor you have to be proactive you have to reach out you have to build relationships um you know i know people who have been in a consultation group that we, that meets, you know, every week or every other week. And they've been in the consultation group for 30 years. 
they know these other therapists forwards and backwards. And, um, you know, this, this, this consultation group was very important to them and no one put that on them. They built that themselves. Uh, you know, people can use Facebook private groups for this kind of thing. You know, there, there's ways around it. I have, uh, you know, mid late career people who are, who will hire me as a consultant because they're isolated. And that seems like a shitty thing to do. They'd have to pay for that kind of stuff, but you know, it's possible and, and often worth it. So yeah, isolation is absolutely a problem, but there are many people who find a way is the point. And if he was having difficulty finding a way. I wish he could have come to me because I could have, I could have helped him. I it's just, I feel mainly I feel bad for him because, and I feel bad for his clients because he seemed to have been doing really great work and he was just truly suffering from the, um, the very common things that all therapists deal with. And in my estimation, many therapists figure out a way to surmount the problem. And he just had no one to help him surmount those problems. Um, he also said that his colleagues would pressure him to move his, his patients to a higher level of care. I'm guessing he was working with people with schizophrenia and this sort of thing. And his colleagues were like, look, you got to get this person into a hospital. And he didn't like that. And yeah, I get that. There's, there's a bias against kind of stuff like that. I, I don't, I wasn't a part of those consultations. So who knows? Anyway. Um, yeah. Okay. Oh, he also said that he thought the suicide prevention system was a little too pushy, was, um, you know, pathologizing too quickly and pressured people to go into hospitals. And yeah, like, you know, I can agree with that too. But the overall way he was talking about the profession and what he didn't like about it, if someone didn't know any better and, you know, a lay person were to watch this video, this would appear it would appear to the lay people that all therapists are terrible. All it, like it, at the end of his video, if you didn't know better, you would think that all therapists didn't care and that he was the one therapist who cared. You would also think that all therapists are only interested in medication. And he was the only one who wasn't interested in medication or, you know, not as med interested. He would have thought that the system is completely against the patient and he was the only one within that system that managed to actually be an advocate for patients. Um, you would think that all diagnosing is evil and that he was the only one in our profession that managed to figure out a way to not make it evil. Like that's the way he talked. And when you look at the, um, so that I have a problem with because it's like either he was in a very dysfunctional bubble, which I don't, I don't doubt, but um but at the same time, it's like, maybe, why wouldn't you just say, well, maybe I was in a weird bubble, <laughs> you know? But anyway, and look, and so it has hundreds of, it has thousands of views on YouTube and lots of comments and people are just like, oh my God, you're brilliant. You're amazing. Um, yeah. Th you know, the system is terrible. Um, you, you have integrity. Okay. This one, psychiatrists are crazy. This one says... Um, this person, I couldn't be a nurse for the same reason. Bullshit healthcare system. So, and other people are like, yeah, we don't need therapists. We just need friends. And true, you need friends, but you know, blah, blah. It, there's a narrative in our, in our society already for a certain slice of our population that believes that therapists are evil and psychiatrists. I mean, just look at Tom Cruise, right? And this, this video plays into that. And 
it, what I think that this video, although he's absolutely free to say whatever he wants and talk about his experience, I think it reinforces this notion that therapy is worthless or dangerous or something. And I think that's a very dangerous message to give out. I wish he would have said something like, there are some good therapists out there. There are some good practitioners who operate the way that I operated. Um, I just couldn't handle the stress. And so I got out and I didn't like all the, all the downsides to the profession. I couldn't deal with the incongruencies in the, in the system. But there are some people out there who are actually managing that and, and managing to help their clients within that system. You know, I wish he would have had that caveat, but he didn't. He basically, it's just a full indictment on every single, not, in, not only on the system, but on every single clinician. I mean, he makes a lot of really blanket claims about clinicians, which are just not true. Are, are there, is there some truth to what he's saying? Yes, absolutely. But to say that he was the only one in the entire sea of clinicians that managed to be effective as a therapist and actually listen to his clients is, is a ridiculous notion. So I, I don't know, I, you know, I, I've been dealing f since I started in this, in this um, profession with a lot of stigma against my profession. Um, you know, it's better now in Seattle in 2018, but when I was, you know, in the, in the nineties, uh, the average person who, you know, people would ask me what I do for a living when I first graduated and people asked me what I did, you know, so what do you, what, you know, what do you do? I would say, I would be truthful. I'd say, Oh, I'm a therapist. And I was proud. I liked being a therapist. I, I liked the profession. I chose it because I consider it a noble profession. I consider it a bit, I consider it to be very meaningful to me and still is. And I would find that people would have, they would either be indifferent, which is fine. I don't need people to care, but, and some people are like, Oh, that's interesting. But there's a good portion of people that be like, Oh, what do you mean? You're a therapist. I mean, this happened just a few years ago. I was at, I think I talked about this in the podcast before I went to the dentist and there was this new assistant and she, um, so as I'm going to tell this story, it's going to sound as exaggeratory, but I guarantee you it is not. <laughs> it was, this story is just so bizarre. Anyway, so, you know, she, she's like, you know, here, come into this office, sit down in this chair, sit down. And, she, you know, she's making small talk and, and she's pretty bad at it right off the start. You know, she's kind of awkward. She's like, well... So, uh, you know, the weather, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yep, weather, you know, blah, 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 random small talk. And she's like, um, so are, you know, because it's the middle of the day. She's like, oh, so are you, are you done with work today? And I'm like, I'm like, nope, um, you know, got to go back to the office after this. She's like, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm a professor. And she's like, oh, of what? And I'm like, oh, I teach therapists, you know, I, I train therapists. And and she, and I always, I, you know, I always just cringe whenever I say stuff like that. Cause I just never really know what kind of reaction it's, I've said before. Sometimes I just tell people I work at Microsoft people, you know, at a dinner party, they'll just be like, so what do you do? I'll be like, Oh, I work at Microsoft because Microsoft is this huge, you know, a lot of people work in at Microsoft Seattle or Amazon. Well, I work at Amazon and, uh, 
because no one wants to know about your job at Microsoft. <laughs> like no one's interested in what you're doing at Microsoft. So, so if I say I work for Microsoft, there's no other questions and I can move on with my, with my night and we can have a good conversation and not focus on, you know, what I do for a living or, or, you know, I, or that I have to justify my whole profession or something. Well, anyway, so, so I sit down and I, and I but I tell her, I'm like, yep, I'm a professor. Oh, what? Oh, a, a trained therapist. And, and she immediately says, Oh, therapy there. God, what'd she say? She said something to the effect of therapists are only in it for the money. That's what she said. She said, Oh, therapists, they don't really care about people. They're only in it for the money. And it was, and you know, I'm not threatened by people's opinions of stuff like that because I, I, I know better. And so, you know, it'd be like saying, you know, Oh, all Americans, they're just running around with guns, shooting everybody. It's like, no, but you know, uh, but I'm secure enough that I don't feel like I have to fight against her. You know, in my head, I'm just like, wow, that was that was a shocking thing to say. And two, uh, you know, what a weird time to say such a thing. And three, like uh, now I now I'm embarrassed for her because I'm just like, oh, man, in like in like a half a second, she's going to realize what she just said and that she just basically negated my entire, not only my, what I do for a living, but also like the entire training program I work for. And she's going to, she's going to realize what she did wrong and she's, she's going to be really embarrassed. And so, man, I, she's probably going to have to recover from this and I feel really bad for her, you know, but that's not what happened. She, she continued to talk about how she had gone to therapy, uh, therapy once and he didn't care about her and, you know, he kept asking her how she felt about things and she didn't know how she felt. And she said, you know, stop pressuring me to tell you how, how I feel about things, you know, and, you know, therapist, she, she just doubled down and like went down this road. And I, I just thought like, what this, this is why I don't tell people why, you know, this is why I, I don't tell people what I do. And I just instantly was like, why didn't you tell her you worked for Microsoft? All you had to do was say you work for Microsoft and everything would have been okay. Um, so, you know, that was, that was just a few years ago. And that was a young person. That's not someone who's, you know, old and stuck in their ways, you know, not to be ageist. There's a whole group of young people who feel the same way that, you know, the previous generations did about our profession. So there's, there's a reason for that, you know? And so there's this whole notion out there and particularly in certain echo chambers that the mental health system is something that is harmful, actually harmful inherently to human beings and that is a very dangerous thing to say, because there are people out there who need to go to a therapist, who need help, who might even need medication. I don't know. And this video might encourage them not even to get any help. And I, I consider that to be irresponsible. Again, he could have said everything the same in the video. He didn't like the profession. He thought that the therapists around him were unethical. He thought that the system wasn't interested in the patients. He thought that you couldn't make enough money in the profession. He could have said everything the same as long as he also said there are therapists out there who actually care. And if you have, if you're going through something significant, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't use my video as an excuse not to go to therapy because, you know, there are some good out there, good ones out there. It might just take a while to find that person. That's all he had to say. Just, just one little statement, but he didn't say that. Because I don't think he believes it. I think he believes the entire system, every single therapist was terrible, and he was a shining beacon of wonderfulness in that vast sea of terribleness. 
Well, what do you think? Tell me what you think. Uh, you can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or you can go to psychologyinseattle.com and fill out the contact us page. I want to thank some recent patrons, patrons who have patronized this podcast by going to patreon.com. We have Amber and Bobby and Rory. Hey, I know Rory. And uh, Salome. Salome? And Sean. Hey, do I know Sean? I know Sean, right? Uh, Deirdre, Amy, Rachel, uh, Jeveline, Carrie, Jobiana, Helen, Patty, Brian, Beth. Hey, I know Beth. Don't I know Beth? Kristen, Dr. Andrea, and Melissa. Let's get some other names. Uh, Kento, a fellow Japanese brother there. Uh, Julia, Laura, Christine, Reuven, Reuven, James, Jessica, Darren, Melody. Thank you so much for becoming a patron of the podcast. Super cool of you. When you become a patron of the podcast, you get access to all of our exclusive episodes in which we do deep dives. Recently did some on narcissistic personality disorder. My narcissistic personality disorder episode was nine hours long, and I broke it up into two parts, which is, um, you know, it was quite a quite a journey that I went on for, um, you know, focusing on the podcast episode itself took me months, but really I'd been working on that episode for years because um, ever since I started the podcast 10 years ago, I knew at some point I wanted to do a deep dive on it. And so... I finally have done that. Um, a lot of you have been emailing me questions. And um, one of the things that I have seen is that, you know, throughout those episodes, I was talking about how narcissistic personality disorder is extremely complex. But once you understand the basic premise, it's actually pretty simple. Um, the other, and you have to listen to the episode to find out what that simple premise is, because I'm not going to explain it here. But as a follow-up to everything, what people are saying is that, um, some people are like, okay, so here's here's something that someone did. Does this mean they have narcissistic personality disorder? And again, I just want to emphasize that narcissistic personality disorder is not you. You can't detect it through one or two behaviors. Um, it is a complex defensive structure that you have to observe in a very particular context for a long period of time. For example. You either have to be married to the person and really understand what narcissistic personality disorder is so you can closely observe them in that way. Or you have to be a therapist and work with someone for a number of weeks. As I said in the episode, it takes, you know, I, I sit down with someone for an hour a week and it probably takes me two to three months with very concentrated assessment procedures for me to, to for me to have a, a good idea as to whether or not someone has any personality disorder, let alone narcissistic. And so some of you are like, well, so, you know, uh, you know, this happened in my life and do I have narcissistic personality disorder? Um, I just, there's no way for me to know that in the same way that I can't just look at Donald Trump uh, and everything that's been on the news and determine if he has a personality disorder. I just, I can, I can say that, you know, there are, there, there's, there are signs, but there's no way for me to know because it's much more complex than this is a set of behaviors. Someone can act arrogant. Someone can be vain. Someone can be extroverted. Someone can love to be on stage. Someone can love getting accolades from the public. 
but that doesn't mean they have a personality disorder. It could mean they're vain. It could even mean you could call them narcissistic, but they don't have a personality disorder. Personality disorders are very complex and they involve a tremendous amount of suffering. That's the part that people I don't think might have retained from my nine hours of talking is that narcissistic personality disorder has a lot of suffering in it. It is not like a, you know, people who are arrogant might not actually be suffering on the inside. They just might be kind of high on themselves <laughs> or they were taught by their parents that they're special or something. You know, personality disorders are disturbances of the personality that are deep. They're not, they're deeper than depression. They are fundamental and very um, dark. You know, the, they might not involve themselves in dark behavior, but they are suffering in a very, very significant way. Anyway, so that does it for that episode. Let me know what you think about all that that I talked about, about the profession. If you're a clinician, let me know how you what you think about all the various things I said. If you're a lay person and you have a lot of, um, I don't know, associations that I touched upon in this episode about what, what therapy is or is not, let me know. Uh, that does it for the episode. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. And go to a therapist and find a good one. Might take a while. Might take, might take, you know, you might have to try out five, 10 therapists before you find a good one. Um, it could take a while for sure. I've shopped around for therapists before myself. It takes a long time. Um, it's, it's kind of a strange expectation that the first therapist you hook up with is going to be the, is going to be the best fit for you. It, it, it's, it often is not anyway, because you deserve it. (laughs) 